right, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, as ever, myself, Alex Connor. And today I'm joined by another Alex, Alex Thomas. Thank you for Good joining night. this morning. Thanks for having me, brother. <laughs> My pleasure, mate. You know what? Actually, I was chatting to a friend the other day. I don't meet many Alexes these days. I don't know if it's, uh, it's becoming a bit of a thing of the past. Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> it's funny. In the industry... I would say that, yeah, like the name Alex is a little bit more uncommon. Um, in social sport, though, social sport settings, like if I was playing touch football, basketball, a little bit of boxing, I'll, I'll always meet an Alex, but typically not um, as common in the fitness industry. This is true. Not not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Good to be unique. That's for sure. Now, Alex, for the people who may not be aware, give us a bit of a rundown. I like to start at the beginning. Tell us what you do and more importantly, why you do it. So I run the Sports Nutrition Association, um, which I guess most people might be familiar with Sports Nutrition Australia if they're listening to this podcast. Um, so that's a regional affiliate body of the association, which is the global body now. So we're in New Zealand, Australia, like I said, Asia, USA, and we're just setting up in Europe and then Canada at the end of the year. So um what we do is establish and standardize what best practice is in the sports nutrition profession. I think that's the most apt way of sort of putting it. And what that means specifically is um, prior to our inception in the regions that we're in, it was sort of like the wild west. That anyone could say, Hey, I'm a sports nutritionist. And that could range from someone that's done like a sports science degree majoring um, in sports nutrition. They're doing some postgraduate work, which is like phenomenal. Yep. You're a sports nutritionist if you've done that, but to then someone that's done like a weekend workshop, on hormones and how to optimize hormones um calling themselves a sports nutritionist because that's just an area that they decided to niche down on um on you know on the basis of a recommendation that a business coach gave them or something like that um or someone that's just done a lot of habitual online message board type research in the bodybuilding.com forums or something like that and then you know again they're a self-appointed sports nutritionist so what we wanted to do is do away with that, um, the Wild West side of things and establish a really good standard of what it meant to be a sports nutritionist. Yeah. And so we sure. do that by educating. Um, we've got sort of like a private education arm and then a professional body and regulation arm as well. Mm. I want to, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper and uh, sort of segregate some definitions for the listeners. But before we do was, um, what got you into this realm of nutrition, if you were like going right back, was there any events or were there any people that inspired you? Even because obviously you're a clinical nutritionist yourself. What was that sort of first initial conception for you to, to, to move into that space? Obviously before the nutrition association, et cetera, um, was, was, is it something you just fell into or was this something that you were always yeah. passionate about? I mean, the story, like if people retrace my steps, it's funny, like I sit down with accountants or like lawyers and they'll be like, oh, this is like so well designed. Um, and you think that it was well planned, but I completely fell into it. And it all started from a place of um, I like just trying to protect myself. So I had a like a training center with an allied health clinic in it. Um, and I was like, right, we're going to have these like phenomenal centers. That'll be a one-stop shop for everyone. And my insurance broker at the time, was a member of ours. And so he was um, in there for an appointment and we were talking about like renewals and stuff. And I had um, strength coaches, personal trainers on the team. There was probably like three to four of those. But then I also had like degree qualified people who were 
sports scientists, exercise physiologists, as well as dietitian on team, physiotherapist, all that stuff, right? Um, and so the majority of our coaches were degree qualified people, but they were in that some form of iteration of like sports science ex-phys. Um, and basically they, <laughs> as it turned out, even though they'd done a few electives and we were talking about food and we had a dietitian on staff, my broker turned around and was like, hey, you're not qualified or you're not covered rather for anything that any of these people in the coaching team are saying, the only one that you're covered for is the dietitian. And I was like, what the fuck do you mean? Like, this sucks. Like, and he was like, yeah, you're liable, you know, like even though it's a public lie, like a public, public liability, uh, proprietary limited company, you like, even though it's like supposed to be limited liability, you're actually covered and it's like your neck on the chopping block. And I was like, wow, this sucks. Um, you know, I probably, I remember sort of just mulling over those words for about the better part of like two weeks nonstop and just thinking, okay, crap. Like what's the liability period? Wow. It's seven years. Um, so everything that my staff do from now until, you know, for the next seven years, it's my, it's my neck on the line. Um, so I came back to him like two, two weeks later after like ruminating on it nonstop being like, what do we do? We have to do something about this, right? Like this is ridiculous. And he was like, you know what? I don't think anyone's like, it is ridiculous, but I don't think anything has been done. Um, you know, let, I'll talk to some underwriters and we'll get the ball rolling. And so we spent the next sort of six to 12 months working on a framework to establish like something that would have an actual legitimate insurance policy for the provision of sports nutrition in a product disclosure um, statement for an insurance product. And while all this was happening, this sort of coincided, right? So it was like the perfect storm where I was just floundering in university at the time, racking up a hex set, but not really accomplishing anything. Back, back in the day, what I was studying, this is like, I sound so old, but God, I feel old. I'm only 32. But um, what you studied back in the day or back in my day was called uh, Bachelor's in Human Movement, right? So that's like what today is exercise physiology. So you did a human movement program and there was the jewel of um, human movements and nutrition dietetics that was available. And so that was a path that I was like, right, I, I had my heart set on that. But as I was going through undergrad, I was like, wow, these subjects aren't really related to what I want to be studying. And so I had this romantic notion and ideology and idea that if I was studying that, I was going to be really learning how to optimize human movement, optimize human performance, optimize metabolism and body composition through both exercise and nutrition. And what I was exposed to what wasn't really that like that what those programs especially what i was doing and i've had um friends and colleagues go through similar experiences and then i've had friends and colleagues more recently go through experiences that are very um i guess like very much the opposite of this and they're very like they're, they're a lot more specific to the athletes and optimization but if we're talking 15 14 15 years ago now these programs were really centered around giving you a base level understanding of the basic sciences and then really looking at like improving public health at a population level. So a lot of the subjects were geared around that. And I was like, wow, I'm racking up this hex debt to become a glorified personal trainer. I was already a personal trainer at the time. And I was like, well, forget that. So I'd sort of like defer and then go back and then muck around. Um, not really sort of getting anywhere. And then when I went into, decided to set my own facility up, I'd made the decision that I wasn't going to be completing any 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 forms of those undergraduate programs at that point but 
probably two years before setting up the facility was when I um, first encountered the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So I was pretty disenfranchised with my studies and what I was getting out of them um, in the formal education sense. Uh, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, I was disenfranchised by it. So I was like, all right, well, I got to find somewhere an A resource must exist where I can get the information that I want to. And so that's what the JISSN was. And so the ISSN had these exams in place where it was like, right. Um, if you're in an undergraduate program, you can sit this exam and we'll recognize your capability um, as a sports nutritionist. It's just mm -hmm. a pass fail, multiple choice online exam. And if you're doing a postgraduate program, say you've completed your undergraduate, then there's the postgrad exam as well. So did the undergrad exam, um, smash that, and then started looking at the journal frequently. They'd had a textbook they published, which was the essentials. Um, and it was a really good textbook for its time. And we're talking like now over 10 years ago, um, over a decade ago. And sports nutrition and sports nutrition education has advanced a lot since then. But um, that was like really the first forum where it all came in, right? So the ISSN is just over 18 years old now. Uh, formally since it's like inception where they've been doing really regular work. But prior to that, there was no sort of one-stop shop for it. So I was about two years into being a member and my exposure to the ISSN and I was working, I was talking and liaising with the presidents and founders and board members of that at the time. And I'd sat the exam and I was like, right, we need to include, we've got this exam. Will the insurers sort of acknowledge that was the first thing. And so the first iteration of what we were doing um, was just, Hey, here's how to practice. Here's how to pay, pass this multiple choice exam. Um, and so then the only, so that the underwriters accepted it, but they came back with the question of, well, how do we know where, because we've got this established profession that is dietetics, right? So it's like, how do we know where the line starts and ends for sports nutrition and then where dietetics takes over. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, Fortunately for me, some of my colleagues and peers who had been studying and then kept studying the whole way through, they were doing masters and PhDs in dietetics at the time. And so we caught up and I was like, look, we need to have this triage system where it's like a green, amber and red. Um, really just like very similar to the FMS system, functional movement screening system, but we do it for nutrition and we only look at contraindicated definite health risks, right? And so... I was like, I'm sure it's there. We'll be able to draw the literature, find what we need. And so this is how we draw the line in the sand for where sports nutrition starts and ends. And then when we start looking at clinical dietetics and nutrition intervention of chronic disease and health treatments and stuff. So um, effectively, that's what we worked on for about six months, um, submitted that through. And that was the first accepted sort of like curriculum or um, cornerstone of a, the initial curriculum to get myself and my staff covered. And so when I then put, us through that. Um, I had a couple of friends do it, colleagues who had facilities and stuff as well. They were like, Hey, I need to do this too. And I had no, like after doing it, the first one, everyone passed. It was great. Um, and it was me just standing in front of a whiteboard being like, here's the subject matter. This is what you need to learn. This is what you do with clients. This is all this kind of stuff. This is what the evidence says, just breaking down what was in the journal, prepping them for the exams, giving them case study scenarios based on, um, you know, what the literature had said at the time and then going from there and you know like that was it it was like this eight-week program just sort of these hectic whiteboard sessions for half a day for eight weeks and everyone got through and i had no intention of doing more 
Mm. It was like, right, we've done it. And then it, as soon as we were about halfway through, we already had five to 10 people calling me up being like, how do I do this next one? And this was sort of before we were really sharing a lot of stuff on social media at the time as well. Like if it was, if something was being shared on social media, it was like, all right, I'm going to tag myself on Facebook with Alex, like with myself. So my friends would tag me, they'd be like, Hey, you know, getting some learning on or something like this, you know, and tag it on Facebook, but it wasn't a story, a video showing what was going, what was being learned. There was no branding or anything like that. So people were just being like, what are you, they would hit them up and say, what are you studying and, and whatnot? And so that's where they would answer them and say, Oh, this, and there's this thing. And so by the time we finished it, we were sort of at like three quarter capacity for the next intake that we hadn't even set a date for. And so we ran the next one sort of like three to four months later. And then it was just this sort of four to four, four monthly to five monthly thing where people were just hitting us up and word of mouth was just following. And so um, I'll be like, we set up, up and the first one was in Australia. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can tell from my accent or not, but I'm Australian. <laughs> Alex wasn't sure if I was Australian or not, or if I, but um, the first one was in Australia. So that was, wow. I think like eight, we started the process about eight and a half years ago now. So that was either just, that was, we're just on either eight years ago now or seven and a half, just over seven and a half years ago now. So that was in Australia. That was our first pilot program. We did that for about two years before the insurers came back and they were like, you've put about, I think it was at, at the time, it was sort of like 60 to 90 people through this over the last two years. They're all still practicing. You really need to start looking before we keep writing more policies, which is great. Great for business, right? More, more people going through more policies, more money to them. But they were like, you really need to start looking at like regulating this. And at this point I, I was like, all right, like what's involved in that? I had no clue. And that's, that, that's sort of when we started the process to set up, incorporate, um, incorporate sport, what, what then became sports nutrition Australia, have a nonprofit um, professional body that regulates the professionals charge a membership fee, um, you know, for the professional registration and audits, all that stuff that follows. Um, and then, so then that got set up and then from there, um, I had my colleague who, uh, who I'd worked with in the past, um, for a number of years, Matt White, who was in New Zealand at the time. And, um, he was like, man, this would be really sick. I want to study it, but we, we should look at setting this up in New Zealand that I know that there's a big market for that there as well. So then we set up in New Zealand, New Zealand was about four years ago now, mm -hmm. four and a half years ago. And then from there it was, um, Asia, we were getting people enrolling from Asia. And then we had a conference um, in early 2019 and had international speakers. And that's where colleagues of mine from the US, UK um, flew in. And I presented about just some industry claim stats just since we'd started. So mm. since we'd sort of registered Sports Nutrition Australia, the claims in the industry within fitness and nutrition in a, in a direct, almost a direct proportion of one another had increased per, per month and per year by a thousand percent in the three years that we'd been established within Australia within that time. And that was just as a result of like the growing trend of no win, no fee stuff. And so we don't hear about a lot of this stuff because a lot of these claims don't make their way to court and they don't have a lot of press around them when they do, because they end up settling either pre or in the early stages of it as like, you know, a quick settlement, um, 
with a non-disclosure agreement, right? And so parties may or may not accept responsibility or even acknowledge that they're accepting responsibility, but whether or not they do or not, it's not to be disclosed after it settles. Mm-hmm. And so we're not really made aware of this stuff, but yeah, basically the claims had increased by about a thousand percent. It was like, look, here's the numbers. We know better. We can be doing better. We should be doing better. The goal is we want to be doing better at this point. Um, and we really want to, you know, for a market at the time that was about 70,000 registered, 70,000 registered exercise and um, sports science professionals. It's like, we want everyone to be aware of what their scope of practice is as it relates to nutrition um, let's do a better job, make sure that everyone's aware, make sure that everyone then once they're aware, they're making better informed decisions professionally. We're looking after the general public, but then at the same time, we're ensuring that every professional is then looking after themselves in that seven year liability period. And so I presented that for, I don't know, it was like all of 10 minutes, um, it, just in, in the middle of everyone else's presentations and speeches. And, and, um, that's when, uh, yeah, we were having dinner later that night um, with my colleagues and they were like, wow, um, we want to get this in America um, as well as the UK and Europe as well. And so at that point, it was like, cool, let's do it. Um, started setting everything up. This year was actually going to be the year that we're going to do that stuff and start launching those things. And then COVID hit and we were like, wow, let's make it earlier. Like we may as well. We're not going to be, normally I would travel, we do like, we'd have initiatives within Australia where we have like a uh, uh, stuff around like physique contest preps mm-hmm. where we get in and say, Hey, look, this is what the best practice of a prep looks like and start making people aware so that we can start avoiding some of these horror stories. We're going to start doing. Um, so we did that in 2019. We're going to do that again in 2020. We're going to then look at doing like a weight cutting thing for athletes as well. And just some initiatives to then make the public aware, but then make coaches aware. Um, and that would mean that I'd be traveling the country sort of like four or five times a year, mm-hmm. get overseas a bit, all that travel got stopped. So, and we couldn't run those events. So it meant that we could bring the timeline forward for the other countries, right. And other regions. So then we started doing that. So in October of last year, we launched in the U S and that's been going really strong. And then I think it was in November, we said we nominated and announced the um, global association. And I guess that's everything that's gotten me up until this point. So it sounds like fantastic and this like well orchestrated thing, but it was literally just, being in these positions at that time, having the experiences that I had identifying that there was this big gap being like, wow, no one's doing anything about it. Well, if no one's doing anything about it, well, I'm going to do something about it at least. So I guess the only thing that we would say is, you know, people always say like, Oh, luck's where like preparation meets opportunity. Um, I guess like I'd done the preparation and I've always had this attitude where it's like, well, I, I, I will always bank on myself to be able to see something through. So if you put me in a room of people and it makes sense, I know that I'll be able to get it done. If I know that, all right, no one's doing this. I'll know I'll be able to do these things. Um, and, you know, if we've got to crack a few eggs and break a few eggs to make an omelet, we're going to make the omelet. Mm, yeah. And sort of, I mean, that- it, no, it's, it's a good, it's a good um, sort of synopsis in terms of you've got a lot of business business ideas a lot of concepts come from where there is a problem or there is a bridge you know a gap that needs to be bridged in many respects and it is a, it's a massive gray area it's exciting how rapidly it's developing but then also as well it's like you're going through with a fine-tooth comb you know you mentioned a few different sort of curriculums there where it's like okay we need a benchmark for weight cutting we need a benchmark for physique prep we need a, a benchmark for who's doing what and where and what's covered and 
initially sort mm. of who, who, who bridges that gap and how do we define it? So it's like going through and kind of setting that up, which is really important. And you touched on it uh, a few times there, Alex, and I want to sort of go back a little bit with, because a lot of people are confused that a lot of the common questions I get is, you know, what's, what's the difference between a dietitian and a sports nutritionist and this, and how many different types are there? It's the whole, what does the osteo versus the chiro versus the physio do? And sometimes there's an amalgamation of things and it gets confusing. So could you perhaps succinctly sort of silo what the categories are, what the differences are between like a dietitian, um, a sports nutritionist, a clinical nutritionist, if there's any others, for example, um, and then maybe even where you're going with that, because there might be other silos. I know I spoke to Eric Helms um, on the podcast, and this was this was a while ago now, and I was asking him, I'm like, look, where do I go? Where do I go now from here with nutrition without necessarily having to do a master's? Because he's like, well, you're going to learn all this, but you're kind of only going to get that. And you're only going to use this. And I think this was at a period where you guys were still kind of come up and coming and Obviously now it's, it's worked out well because, you know, I sort of found out about Phil um, for the people and obviously he's one of the assessors for you guys. And then it was like, okay, this is, this is now a more direct way forward for, for, for people like me, but does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, um, if you want to, if you want to say like, I guess the, the title of the profession, mm. I can give you like their bandwidth and scope um, that they operate within and help mm. sort of, help people distinguish i guess the differences so if you've got like a like an apd which is accredited practicing dietitian they are someone that can work with medical interventions um like a medical intervention through nutrition right mm-hmm. um they can treat and manage certain chronic diseases um and certain ailments through nutrition and they can work in conjunction with doctors um for managing nutrition with certain uh, medications as well a clinical nutritionist is someone that can do something very, very similar, but then the scope is then reduced. So they're not going to be able to treat and manage certain chronic disease and conditions. And they really, uh, like, like, I guess what we're told is that as soon as that, as soon as there's like medications involved, then they, that's where they really need to be then referring on to the dietitian. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So then a sports nutritionist is someone that primarily works in the realm of sports performance through to body composition management and then weight management. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, look, this is my own bias, but 95% of people are going and talking to someone about their food because they want to manage their weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to like, and it's not to say that a dietitian or a clinical nutritionist isn't going to be capable of doing that. It's just that when we look at, the academic curriculum and the subject curriculum that they're exposed to. There is so much clinical medical nutrition. Like now, now in most dietetics programs, there's two oncology subjects, just like how to manage nutrition with cancer. Right. So these people are phenomenal at that, but they're not getting amazing training in like adaptive metabolism, energy availability, weight management approaches. Um, it's not to say that they're not capable or anything like that. It's just to say that the curriculum that they're exposed to isn't the curriculum to best help them succeed professionally in those endeavors. And so if someone was to say, Hey, look, I am uh, pre-diabetic and I've got uh, hypertension and I need to lose weight, then a dietitian is going to be good for them. Right. Is that dietitian going to help them lose the weight 
the best way possible to avoid rebound and all that kind of stuff. Look, potentially not, but is the dietitian going to help them lose weight with hypertension, pre-diabetes? Yeah, that's going to be the best person for them. However, if it's someone who doesn't have those things and they just want to lose weight and manage their weight, then that's where a sports nutritionist or a sports dietitian, someone that's done their dietetics, who's then done two years postgraduate study specifically on sports beyond that as well, a sports dietitian, that's where they're going to be the best suited for that. If we're looking at performance, improving athletic performances, if we're looking at things like a physique competition, if we're looking at like weight cuts, again, that's that's the sports nutrition and sports dietitian realm. Mm. It, it always seems to me like there's the segregation. If you were to sort of split it up, you've got the clinical setting here, getting people who are yep. unwell and have elements to at least well uh, or healthy, quote unquote. And then we've got the, now I want to be above, you know, normal. It might even be just getting mm. someone, you know, to a, a more um, athletic, if you like, uh, physique standpoint, or even, you know, sort of a more performance-based. And then obviously, wow, we're looking at elite athletes. And I think this is the conversation I always have. And you, you've sort of nailed it there where it's, it's confused or it has been confusing to me and a lot of people you're like, well, hang on, how can someone who's done so much study, but then that it almost seems like the, the simple like body composition stuff is, is, is not there. Some of the dietitians struggle and having conversations with friends who are dietitians who have given me really like examples when they're working in hospitals and things like that. They're like, Alex, you'd be surprised yeah. at how simple this is, but it's just like keeping someone alive. Like, and, and, and sometimes that's mm. the, you know, uh, very wearing over time, but then, you know, sort of going on the opposite side of that going, well, that that's great. And we need these people. And there's, that's probably a whole nother rabbit hole about things could probably be improved in hospitals. Cause you think, hang on, these are people who are in need of quality nutrition. And yet the qualitative aspect of it sometimes is it, from what I've heard, again, I'm not their first person is, is not quite there, but again, that's probably another gap that that needs to be filled. But then mm. obviously going into the performance realm where people are more, it seems a little bit more glamorous, doesn't it? It's a bit more like, oh, you know, it's cool kind of getting every single percent out of the athlete and looking at things very strategically. It's yes. I think that's probably where most people think of, of nutrition to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Like I would say you like people, uh, I guess, look at it as though they're two camps. Mm. where it's like, hey, you can't have performance or body composition with health at the same time. Mm. And I would say they're intrinsically linked until you get to like the like elite acute extremes. And that might be like two weeks out from an event or the event itself. It's not really healthy. Mm. If you're going to, if you're, if you're, if you're pursuing world championship level, right. But, you, you know, if, if you're not, if you're a 16 year old kid, and you're looking to peak for like, or set yourself up to have a really good career when you're 24, 25, then what you're doing at 16 shouldn't be compromising health. And so I think that's where people sort of like often throw the baby out with the bathwater and they're like, oh, well, like, you know, health is like different to um, sports performance or weight management, body composition. It's like, like both need to be like, like sports needs to be considerate of health mm. almost at all times. And it needs to be considerative health to the point where it's like, even if you are doing extreme things in a world championship setting, you need to be aware of what the like risk versus reward is. So you need to be mindful enough um, to be aware of that. It's just to say that when we're talking about separating the two, it's just that clinically trained health optimizers through nutrition just 
like by virtue of the curriculum that they're exposed to as, as a default, if we're just saying, Hey, this is a default, not including anything that they go and do at a postgraduate or, or an additional study, but just like the minimum standard. So that dietitian in a hospital is not going to be the best person to prepare an athlete for an event, or they're not going to be the best person to help someone lose 40 to 50 kilos long-term factor in the, you know, like energetic uh, variables within their lifestyle and do so in the most optimal way without avoiding weight rebound and introducing them to concepts such as like diet breaks, um, you know, for, for managing uh, their adherence, managing their hungers and perception, hunger and perception of effort whilst going through a dieting period, things like that, they're they're not going to be exposed to. They're just going to be like, right, whack you in a massive deficit. This is what you need to stick to. And then as things improve, you'll be good. Yeah. 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 And there's no, like you said, um, sort of attention there to like energy availability, body fat percentage, and then maybe no. it's like relative energy deficiency in sport. If, if obviously depending on the performance of, of the athlete and what they're doing. Yeah. It, it, that's, that's fascinating, you know, cause you think, well, if you're doing dietetics and you're doing all this, you think, well, maybe we, we'd cover that. It seems to me like it would be more, of a like basic like hey guys let's let's kind of cover that like okay maybe we don't need to look at peaking for physique maybe we don't need to look at that but like i don't know like when i did like fortunately for me early on i was always sort of seeking knowledge seeking knowledge and i found the likes of eric helms um and the crew i studied in new zealand and i sort of i read all the pyramids and whatnot and then i start that led me on to other people like lane norton this and i'd always sort of dissimilate it and i think that really helped build that it was just all of the amalgamation of knowledge over time. But that was always my question when I was speaking to, to practitioners and professionals like yourself, I was like, where, like, what, where am I going to go with this? Cause I don't necessarily want to work in, in a hospital. Um, I want to mm-hmm. sort of work with people from more of a performance standpoint, if you will, or a sporting perspective, but kind of where is that segregation of knowledge? And yeah, like you said, this is why I guess we, we need these, um, you know, governing bodies like yourselves uh, or these institutions where we can actually go, hey, here's the line in the sand. Here's kind of what we need to know for each silo to a degree and um, and kind of improve that industry standard, especially because, as you said, we get a lot of horror stories where, especially in the sporting realm, where you think people that could Mate. sort of, with, without doing a fucking, you know, like, because this is the thing. I mean, I started off in sports science. It was, oh, I'm going to do masters, I'm going to do this. And it actually took a master's student to say, hey, look, don't actually, unless you really want to, like just start with a, you know, degree, like figure out what you want to do. And he says, trust me, he's like specialized. And this was years ago. And this was just an advice because this person, this particular individual was like, look, I've done all this year of studies. Like I've got these qualifications, but it's not specific. It's like, it's really hard to find jobs. He's like, if I could offer any advice. I mean, I was only young at the time. I was 17 when I started studying, just straight out of college, straight in. And he's like, look, yeah. just try and find something you're passionate about and, and, and find and find a niche. And, and this was many, many, many years ago now, but probably good advice in hindsight. But again, yeah. you know, it took years for things like this to develop. And I'm glad I sort of waited rather than going into a course where I would have sort of maybe only been using, you know, 10 or 20% of that knowledge. And a lot of it would have been wasted. And that is kind of how it works. Anyway, you know, the 80, 80, 20 rule does seem to persist where, you will find yourself using a percentage of that knowledge rather than everything you've learned in mm. many respects. I wanted to ask actually, just, I know we've, uh, we've only got 15 left, but in terms of the highest qualification in the performance realm, 
because I want to go on and do the ILPN. I think that's one of the most recognized, if, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so we've got the I, we've got four programs we're referring to. So we've got the IOPN, the IOC, HPN2, and then AUT have a 180 um, grad dip to master's bridging pathway as well. Right. So um, depending on where you want to go with it, if you know that you want to go to master, I'll just say go straight to AUT. Eric's a research fellow there. You get access to him. Um, like, and they're doing it remotely now. So that's something that we've been, that we, we started working on sort of like two years ago. It was like a link in to their um, uh, grad dip to master's bridging pathway. Yeah. Um, but other than that, the other three, HPN2, IOPN, IOC, um, they're all phenomenal um, equivalents of a postgraduate diploma. Hmm. Does that, that graduates sound- of the cert, the, I, I, think, I think people think, I just got to clarify this as well, that graduates of cert get guaranteed entry into. And I think people think, oh, they're like, oh, well, I've got to, oh, what, what's this? After three years, I've got to do more study. And it's like, yeah, um, because otherwise, like we don't want you settling for the minimum, but also it's like there's a huge privilege getting guaranteed entry into these programs because otherwise you would have to do an undergraduate. Like you'd have to complete a bachelor's. That's the whole thing. Like we've we've got we've we've been able to establish these relationships where you can go in and there's an entry pathway because the curriculum is good and because you get those years of experience. We've been able to establish these like direct entry pathways for you to get access to things that you would otherwise cost a lot more money and take a lot more time to get to. Yeah. It's, it's like a more direct route, which is exactly uh, if you, especially if you're passionate in this area, it avoids a lot of wasting of resources and time. I actually spoke to mm. a few people on my course about this and they were like, what? I have to like upskill in three years. And I'm like, yeah, otherwise you won't get like recognized. And I'm like, why? And I'm like, cause they don't want you settling for mediocrity. Um, but anyway, I guess yeah. this is why you've got to be passionate about it. But with that um, evolution of qualification in that realm, what would that qualify you to do more? Obviously, you have to understand the concepts at a higher level or in greater detail. But for yeah. example, if I put this into context, this is my interpretation. If someone was looking to employ me or contract me, say for, let's say, Man United, would they go, yeah. well, hang on a minute, Alex has got all this years of experience, but he's got this very high accredited level of performance nutrition and obviously someone at the high end like them would go well we want him because he's got you know more knowledge at that specific end of performance is that kind of the difference between someone who furthers their education in the performance realms it just gives you more of a i guess a bespoke uh, high-end qualification where you'd have more precision uh, and maybe tools in the old tool belt yeah, for sure. And like, for instance, we wouldn't want someone with the certificate working like in a clinical sports nutritionist setting mm. in the first place. So it's like, it's that provisional qualification. So it's like, don't go get the cert and then go pay rent somewhere and say, hey, I'm a sports nutritionist. That's reserved for the openly accredited people. Mm-hmm. If you want to take up like a clinical office space or anything like that and then work exclusively in that line, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the cert is there as the provisional qualification for people who let's say you're a fitness professional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's for you to dip your toes over, transition the business model to be way better. Like in, in, in my opinion, and like the numbers supported, we've got a video coming out on YouTube in the next few weeks. that will sort of like break it all down for you so that you can see it. We, um, like when COVID hit, we, we, um, when, when COVID hit last year in our May and July intakes, we tripled our like intake openings to be able to help 
specifically for fitness professionals to transition over because everyone's like, oh, being an online PT, it's like, how do you do that effectively without having sports nutrition services to offer? So, um, yeah, like from our end, it's like, look, set it up, get it good. And then if you like it and let you know, and you're generating a decent amount of revenue from it, 500 plus a week, then it's like, hey, at some point, double down. And if you eventually want to transition, not have any of those coaching appointments in a week, then become openly accredited. And like you said, like if you want to be that person who is applying for a job at Man U, then yeah, you need to have, you need to be openly accredited and registered. So we've got the sports nutritionist registry.com. And that's where prospective employers will like run a name check, Google you, make sure that you're openly accredited. And then they'll see the additional stuff um, attached to your name, whether it's master's, PhD, research, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be, but then they can reference that as well and then see that. And those will be things they're looking for. They at least want you to have a bachelor's or a postgrad dip as a minimum when you're applying for these jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's good. I look forward to that video actually in terms of uh, the model because that's, that was something I was going to dive into um, mm. a little bit, but we'll, we'll probably save that and maybe even for, for the next one. Um, before we sort of get towards the end and some, some of the rapid fire, what I wanted to ask you is um, what are some of the, and again, we'll keep it short and sweet with this, but the biggest misconceptions that you see practitioners making within this space and what are the ways to kind of alleviate that? For example, it could be misconceptions within terms of diet fads. It can be the way they approach clients. I'm not quite sure, but what do you see um, being the biggest mistakes and, and how to perhaps rectify those? I just see like, you know how you were talking about before um, when, when you said uh, like you wanted to get into the space, right? But you wanted to find a way that you could get access to it. Um, and apart from us, the only traditional ways were complete your undergrad and then sports was offered at a postgraduate level. So it was mm-hmm. going to be that post, those postgrad dips or a master's in sport and exercise and nutrition at specific universities. I know University of Sunshine Coast with Gary Slater, they've got a really good master's program in sports nutrition, but typically they want you to be the dietitian or an exercise physiologist first and mm-hmm. sort of then go down that road. So from, from, from my end with that, I would say that, the biggest misconception is people, like you're saying, they'll have these ideas and like romantic notions where it's like, okay, I'm going to go study that because it means that I get to work with this amazing data, mm-hmm. right? I get to work with the athletes in the 1%, like what you were talking about before. And it's like, yeah, you do. But the reality is, is that for 99% of you, you're self-employed. And so that's why we have the cert and the three-year provisional period. So that way you can you can get in and start getting your feet wet at an experiential level very, very early and applying these concepts in a practical setting with clients to then start experience, like taking some L's, right? So taking some losses, taking some learns, taking some lessons on board, and then refining and developing your craft as a professional throughout that process. So we don't recommend to people who come into the program completely green. We don't recommend that they, you know, go and study straight away. Now, if you're a fitness professional and you've got years of experience servicing clients, that's a different story. It's like, you want to keep studying, go for it. Um, but typically with the certificate and with what we do, we've, we've got four different markets that, 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 that who, who look at enrolling, right? So we've got a fitness professional looking to transition their business, add the service offering and sort of test the waters in that space. Mm-hmm. We've got, 
someone that's completed a relevant sports science or nutrition science degree. And so they just want to then register with us to then have the sports component. So from their end, it'll be like, right, I'm a clinical nutritionist, but I want to practice in the sports setting. Mm -hmm. And I can't a do online check-ins for people because I'm not covered for it because I have to have soap notes and patient notes for every appointment. Whereas as a, for a registered sports nutrition service, I don't have to do that. Plus a clinical nutritionist won't have the scope of practice to work in a sports setting that mm -hmm. won't be in their product disclosure statement. Same thing for a registered dietitian if they're not the sports dietitian. So they'll look to add that or an ex-phys who's done a couple of nutrition electives. They want to have the sports setting, get move away from the soap notes, that, that, that type of person. Um, the third one will then be a student. So then someone who's studying one of those programs. And my biggest suggestion for them is, mate, do this in first or second year. So that way you're graduating with a client list straight away. Um, because when, when I was going through, when you were looking at doing this stuff, this didn't exist. No. But if I could do this whilst I was doing what are the undergrads of today that are less public health based, um, then, you know, I would, I would have done it. I would have been registered. I would have, you know, like, and then I would have worked my whole way through, come out with a client base of the clients that I want to be working with from day one. And then the fourth one is the green person, right? And so the green people, we will say, don't study straight away. You need to have that period to refine those things because, like we would see, you know, success leaves clues and industries demonstrate trends, right? And like what we see in SNC, very, very few people are employed by the team as that team nutritionist, as that, you know, team specialist. And then what they don't understand is you're at the mercy of the coach. Like every time a coach gets fired, then that whole coaching and, and like support team, a lot of the time they're gone as well. Hmm. And so the, the life of, of, of these professionals isn't, isn't that great if, you, if you're employed by the team. Whereas if you can be that person that develops those skills in a private setting, in a private practice setting, you generate clients really, really well, then you can do quite well. Phil, who you mentioned before, you know, he does really, really well privately. He's just had a guy um, who's an NFL player who's come on recently and he's doing like awesome things, giving him a shout out like in like on, on, on an NFL like media day. Um, and now Phil's inundated with all these inquiries as it relates to this guy because he's one of the best kickers in the league. Mm. So um, I would say, I would say, like, I, I would say, depending on the audience or like, or depending on like our type of student that we get of those four, there's misconceptions sort of at every level. I would say there's a misconception that, you know, like you were talking about, like for say students, right? I'm going to go do dietetics because I want to learn about this. Well, you're not going to. Um, and then, you, you know, the misconception is, well, you would think that you would, but the reality is, is like certain places like Endeavor College of Natural Health, they run dietetics degrees now. So you, like, you're not going to learn about energy availability through them. And, no. and a big thing that we have, um, and I guess it comes up with like competitors because like no one really competes with us because we're the body first. So the private education is just a way that we can help people get compliant. So mm -hmm. say it's someone who's done one of those courses and degrees, they may not have all the subjects. So we've then just got to fill the gaps for them. Um, and so that that's why the private education sort of exists is to help whoever's at those different levels of, you know, student background transition into the industry. But like, like the, the rate at which academic curriculum is disseminated is really, really slow as well. So like unis are now talking about EA in certain programs. 
but that was first published in 2014. Mm. And the average rate at which it gets disseminated into a curriculum is four to six years. And so for us, we can update it because we choose not to affiliate with any country's national framework because one, the rate at which it disseminates is so slow. If we were to, we couldn't update annually and have it very, very contemporary and relevant based on the research. And then two, all the countries and regions never complement one another. There's always differences. So what, you know, like what we have now with the global body is it's like, once you recognize one region, you've met the criteria to be recognized in all. So then you just say, right, once COVID settles down, I'm leaving Australia, I'm going to go to America, right? We just do a passport admin transfer, pay, pay an admin fee, and then off you go. There's no headache associated with it. Whereas we get people who have done a PhD in dietetics in Italy and they can't register to be a dietitian in Australia because our frameworks are different. Yeah. And so like the speed of the, the, the speed of the, that the information is disseminated and then passed on to people. So that way, you know, that, that way they can be taught relevantly is, is quite slow in traditional academia. And then these frameworks don't complement one another. And so, you know, courses will be out there and be like, we're nationally accredited and we're like, well, we're not. And here's why. And we don't want to make any warranties about why we're not, uh, or, or even infer that we are because to us being nationally accredited is like a weak point. It's like, cool. So you're going to update your stuff every four to five years. And then what, what you've got something that's recognized in Australia, great for the Aussie people, but not great for, if you've got a international clients, which a lot of people do now, mm -hmm. and then B, if you then have the prospect of wanting to work globally or anything like that. So for us, it was all about like relevance. And when you look at our board members of the association, look, we, we, we jump in, we look at, we review the curriculum annually. And then we like in conjunction with reviewing the curriculum with the board, then we work in conjunction with the insurers and the underwriters based on current claims. And that's what informs our curriculum. Right. And so we have the top professionals in the industry, in the world, reviewing it annually and then passing on feedback based on the research that they're interpreting. And then we've got it with the most current insurance claim statistics. And this is updated annually. It's like the minimum standard can't be better in, in my opinion, based on that formula compared to like other models. Yeah, no, I, I love that, mate. And I appreciate you going through all, all those little avenues. And there's, there's probably a lot more to extrapolate, but perhaps, uh, perhaps a round two as well for, for people. who. Yeah, want I think for sure. I think if, if anyone's got questions or they listen to this and they've got questions, mate, just, just hit, get them to hit you up and then we can sit down and, and knock out like a big Q and A or something like that for sure. Perfect. Yeah. Cause there's a few other, I think there's a few other important topics I'd love to cover. So what I'll do is I'll collate all of that back. And um, like you said, we can do a bit of a Q and A and, and go through and sort of tick all the main sort of boxes off that people want for, for, before you do go uh, for people uh, that want to obviously find out more, I will link in, you know, the, the association, et cetera. Is there anywhere else you would lead people onto if they want to find out about more uh, about you or follow along or any other resources you'd want to share, Alex? Um, yeah. So I, um, I like, I know you said like, Hey, look, I practice clinically and stuff. I haven't practiced for about mm, like 18 months now. Um, yep. so I might get back and practice. I get hit up probably like once, once a month, at least for people, me to take on clients, but I don't. So if you're thinking, Oh, I want to work with this guy. Sorry. At the moment, my, um, <laughs> my, my, my commitments are to the association first and foremost. Um, and then, um, but if they want to hit me up or follow any of the stuff that I'm doing, like with the program, with the body, um, as far as it relates to like scope or just being informed, um, 
on, on in that capacity, then they can just hit me up. My Instagram handles at Aussie sports nutritionist or one word. And um, I like, that's look, that, that's probably the best place. I'm so, like, yeah. I'm all right on Instagram. I'm not on it that much. I'm not like someone that's on social media. Heap. You, you can attest to this, Alex. Yes. Yes. That's all good. I, but the funny thing is, or the ironic thing is that most people who aren't super active on social media actually do really well in the real world. And there's, you know, not always, but for the most part, it's, um, it's a bit of a disconnect. I, um, I've definitely got to up my game. It's something that I know is a priority. It's just like, I'm like, Oh, like my phone rings 24 seven. I'm like, Oh, get away from me. <laughs> but, um, it's a love hate relationship and I'm getting better at it. So yeah, just by all means, hit me up on that. If I can help in any capacity, just let us know. Um, but yeah, like mate, I had a ball. Um, even if the next time you want to pop up to our offices and we can just knock it out in the studio here. Yeah. Are you guys in Brizzy? Whereabouts are you? Uh, in Albion in Brisbane, yeah. Yeah, perfect. I, I'm down there frequently actually with one of my business coaches. So uh, we'll definitely, we'll make it work. It'll be a great round two. Um, I will add all those links for everyone. Everyone knows what to do. Like, comment, subscribe. Obviously, uh, leave a rating and a review. Last thing from you, Alex, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Uh, if you could Thanks just leave me. the audience with one bit of information to improve their life uh, on the daily. It can be something that we've talked about today or something completely different. What advice would you pass on for people to do? Just enjoy the present moment. And, and, and try and find the space. This is going to sound really abstract, but just try and identify the space in between the seconds to see how much like time in the present moment there is. Because no it. matter how busy you are and stuff, if you can do that, um, you know, then if you can do that, then you, you'll, you'll still enjoy every, every moment with what you're doing. Yep. I second that. Something I'm trying to practice lately and I've been talking to a lot of my clients about mindfulness, enjoying the moment, being present. Alex, it's been fantastic. Thank you for joining me. No worries, man. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Stay fearless. Chat soon.